us the critics and editors of the new Criterion. The monthly journal, co-founded in 1982 by Hilton Kramer, who was an SU alum, graduating in 1950. Hilton was not only, is not only a publisher, but also was a prominent, very frequently controversial art critic back in the day. And I regret very much he couldn't be with us here tonight because his dedication to the craft of criticism and his love for all the arts led him to create this format for this journal. With its combination of right-leaning political commentary and cultural criticism, the new criterion supplies an important voice in our diverse media landscape. The attitude of the journal, to me, seems like Hilton's, unabashedly challenging and confident. In the words of the new criterion itself, it is dedicated to, quote, championing what is best and most humanely vital in our cultural inheritance and in exposing what is mendacious, corrosive, or spurious. Those fighting words, right? <laughs> but pick up a copy of the journal and you're immersed in a world of ideas and debate. You may agree or disagree with the opinions, but in a world of tweeting and empty blather, the seriousness of the writing in the new criterion is refreshing. I'm delighted to have these writers and editors talk about their work tonight. To introduce them and to lead the discussion is David Yezzi, the journal's executive editor, who is a very dear friend, and by the way, a very brilliant poet. Thanks, and David. Uh, good evening. Welcome to Elucidations and Corrections, Arts Criticism at the New Criterion. And I want to thank Johanna Keller for that lovely introduction and, uh, and the Goldring Arts Journalism Program at Syracuse University for hosting us tonight. We at the New Criterion are particularly pleased to be partnering with Syracuse since, as Johanna said, Syracuse is the alma mater of the New Criterion's founding editor, Hilton Kramer. We would, of course, have loved for Hilton to be with us this evening, but he is currently in Maine and was unable to travel to New York. Uh, for the uh, program tonight. I first met Hilton through the New York Observer, where I had the pleasure of working with him on his weekly art column. And he was, of course, for many years before the founding of the New Criterion, chief art critic of the New York Times. Earlier this year, Transaction Books reissued The Age of the Avant-Garde, Hilton's landmark collection of essays on art. As Norman Padoritz said on the occasion of the magazine's 25th anniversary, more than any other critic of our time, more energetically, more relentlessly, more brilliantly, more courageously, Hilton has stood against the degradation of modernism in the arts and the symbiotic degradation of liberalism in politics and culture. We are also delighted and encouraged to see such a large crowd uh, during these very trying times for magazines and for print journalism in general. We at the New Criterion have remained optimistic, uh, cautiously optimistic, about weathering the current economic storms besetting small not-for-profit journals such as ours, largely because of an ever-widening circle of friends who generously support our efforts. A number of those familiar faces from the magazine's Friends program are with us tonight. And if you're interested in becoming a friend of the New Criterion, I encourage you to do uh, either pick up uh, one of the Friends program brochures, uh, which you'll find just outside, along with current issues of the magazine, or speak to Callie Siskel, our assistant editor, who can answer any questions you might have. In the first issue of the New Criterion, some, I guess, 28 years ago, there, are, uh, uh, there was a, a, an opening um, manifesto of sorts and notes and comments, a statement of purpose, which began as follows. There are no doubt many reasons for wanting to start a new review, but the primary one was long ago stated with exemplary candor by Sir Walter Scott. Scott declared that, quote, the real reason for instituting a new publication is the disgusting and deleterious doctrines with which the most popular of our reviews disgraces its pages. 
Scott was referring to the Edinburgh Review, but in terms of magazines in the early 80s, I'll let you fill in the blanks. Here's what the new criterion in that first issue was concerned with. To distinguish achievement from failure, to identify and uphold a standard of quality, and to speak plainly and vigorously about the problems that beset the life of the arts and the life of the mind in our society. Here is what it was against. Writing that is, quote, either hopelessly ignorant, deliberately obscurantist, commercially compromised, or politically motivated. With me tonight is a panel of editors and critics from the New Criterion, including to my immediate left, Jane Nordlinger, music critic, the editor of the New Criterion, Roger Kimball, next to him, the New Criterion's dance critic, Laura Jacobs, and managing editor, James Pinero. And I'd like to start uh, by asking Roger to say a little bit about <coughs> the New Criterion as it came into being in the early 80s and how he personally came to be at the New Criterion. Uh, well, thank you, David. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks to, the, to Syracuse University for hosting this event. Um, well, I think the New Criterion, how it came into being, you outlined it uh, very well um, uh, in that opening statement from the, from the first issue. Um, Hilton had been laboring in the salt mines of the New York Times for 17 years. Uh, he was more and more restless, more and more dissatisfied with um, those very pressures he enumerated. Uh, the, uh, pr commercial pressures, political pressures, pressures to dumb things down, uh, pressures really um, not to tell the truth about the art and culture that he was writing about. He wanted a, uh, a more capacious forum for his writing, uh, a place where he was not confined to 700 or 800 or 900 words. Uh, and I think he, he struck uh, at just the right moment um, in, in the early 80s. The New Criterion was founded in 1982, and there really was nothing else like it on the scene. Here was a, a serious um, but conservative uh, journal of the arts, also modernist. This seemed like a very odd combination of things. Conservative, you know, that means conserving what is best from the past. It doesn't mean we have a political agenda because the new criterion doesn't have a political agenda. We have political opinions as individuals, but what we, what we care about is that huge deposit that we have received from the past that makes us who we are, that makes our culture what it is. We want to preserve it, cherish it, um, uh, defend it against uh, the, the many forces that would corrupt it. And uh, that's really what the new criterion has been about. That's why Hilton and Sam Lippman started the magazine back in the early 1980s, and it instantly became a kind of sensation. Uh, the new criterion, I think, owes its longevity to a very large extent, not only to its friends, who are, are numerous, uh, but even more, I think, to its enemies, who may be more numerous. Uh, right. You know, uh, <laughs> William Bean Howells once said that the problem for a critic was not making enemies but keeping them. And the New Criterion has been pretty, pretty good at that because we have always striven to tell the truth about things. And uh, people often don't like to hear that. And uh, we're, we've been very forthright about all of the that huge smorgasbord of things that you could congregate under the umbrella of political correctness. We don't like it. And we say we don't like it. And we give reasons for it. And uh, uh, early on in the magazine's uh, tenure, uh, we were viciously attacked uh, by Leon Wieseltier, for example, in the, uh, in the New Republic, uh, who, who took it very much amiss that we were funded by something called the Olin Foundation, which he thought might have some insidious connection with the Olin Corporation, which was in the business of making ammunition. And uh, he sort of in, uh, insinuated that we had a direct line to the, to the White House and so on, all, all of which, of course, was nonsense. But the point is that the new criterion was put on the map, really, as much by its enemies as by its friends. And I think that's something that uh, uh, we're grateful for, really. As for my uh, association with the magazine, it began early in the, the, its history. I was, uh, I was uh, teaching at Yale, uh, knew I was not going to get tenure, and didn't cherish the idea of moving to 
Montana, say, to, to teach. Uh, so um, my Greek tutor in college um, knew Hilton. They had, they had taught together and uh, wrote a letter of introduction. I came to New York and began writing for the magazine. That was 1983, the magazine's second year of existence, and I have been writing for it ever since. I joined the staff in 1989 and um, uh, have been there happily ever, ever since. Um, uh, we have with us a, a, a pretty nice cross-section of the, of the kinds of criticism that you're likely to find in the new criterion. If you're here tonight, you'll probably have some exposure to the magazine, but I can tell you, if you haven't seen it recently, that um, in addition to uh, feature articles and poems, um, we have uh, you know, book reviews and uh, a criticism in really in every issue across the fine arts. Uh, in um, the visual arts, music, theater, dance. And uh, I want to throw a question out both to Laura, our dance critic, and to Jay, the music critic. Uh, T.S. Eliot has this notion um, that he kind of describes in The Perfect Critic, uh, his essay called The Perfect Critic. Uh, he says in that essay that it is fatuous to say that criticism is for the sake of creation, because he, of course, was thinking at one point in his life that he wrote criticism in order that he could write poems. He says, well, that's not so. That's not exactly right. But he does say that the two directions of sensibility, in other words, creation and criticism, are complementary. And as sensibility is rare, unpopular, and desirable, it is to be expected that the critic and the creative artist should frequently be the same person frequently, not necessarily. But since we have two critics here who do have some background in the art that they write about, I thought it would be interesting uh, first maybe to hear from Laura and then from Jay a bit about their training in the arts and how that has affected their writing about the arts. Laura? I fell in love with classical dance as um, a, a child, but I never took dance uh, until I was about 16 when all of a sudden I decided I'm going to be a ballerina. Um, 16 is really too late to begin uh, for a girl, but I began anyway and I started taking class at Ruth Page in Chicago and um, I, I was naturally coordinated and I learned very quickly and was in an advanced class within about a year. I think it is certainly very important for a critic to have studied their art form in some way or another. I know, critic, uh, I know fellow critics who began writing in their 20s and started taking ballet classes then to learn vocabulary, uh, um, to learn technical um, refinements uh, to, so they would understand what they were seeing. But I think I was particularly blessed uh, learning dance, taking dance classes. As a 16-year-old, 17, 18, I, I continued dancing till I was 21. I danced through college. Because if I had started as a child at seven or eight or nine, I would have not been thinking in the same way about what I was learning. I was burning with ambition to be a dancer, and but I was old enough while I was learning the rudiments to really be thinking about them and thinking about them not just intellectually but poetically too. And I think that was a very, very important um, formative experience for dance criticism. I actually didn't think I was going to be a dance critic. Um, I, in college, I, I changed my ambition to being a poet. Okay, I'm not going to be a ballerina, I'm going to be a poet. And I started writing poetry, but I soon realized that um, dance criticism was a kind of poetry, and I sort of switched from writing poems to writing about dance. Um, they're very similar forms in that, um, or arts, I should say, in that uh, they're transient, you're, you're trying to uh, ensnare or net something ephemeral uh, to write about dance. You see it, it's gone. There's really no record. Uh, dance on film, of course, is a, a very important uh, 
study tool, but you will never get the same experience on film that you get in a theater. So, um, so that's that's where I came from. Um, and it leads to a kind of a particular kind of criticism, I think. Um, you know, careful study of the techniques of the art, um, I think, results in a more kind of practical criticism than than a kind of theoretical uh, criticism. Very practical, because you understand <laughs> what um, what dancers are feeling in their in their hips when they're turning out. You understand what it takes to get a perfect développé à la seconde, and you know when it's not perfect. Um, there are a lot of dance critics uh, working today at the New York Times who don't really know the technique. They don't know that that dancer isn't doing it correctly. And you can say, well, maybe the dancer doesn't need to be doing it 100% right um, to get to get the achieved effect, and sometimes that is the case, and you and you um, overlook that because something else has gone, some compensation has been made. So, so the technical limitation isn't important. But there are those of us critics who will talk about this and will be like, they just don't see it. Dance takes many, many year, years to learn to see just as I think music takes many years to really hear a painting, to, to actually see what's going on in a painting. These are slow, slow processes. And I actually believe you don't become a real dance critic until you're 40. You have to see too much. You can start at 20, but you have to see everything before you know what is rare. I just, I'll, before I uh, turn it over to Jay, I. I want to recommend to you what is for me, I think, <clears throat> one of Laura's very finest piece, pieces, uh, which is a look at uh, various classical dancers through the lens of a single move, which is the arabesque, a very basic dance step. And the way that each dancer handles the arabesque is really telling about their entire, uh, it really says everything about them as, as, as dancers, as technicians, as musicians, as and, and Laura's poetic writing about that, through that very technical, specific lens, um, is an extraordinary feat of criticism. I recommend it to you. Thank you. Uh, now, Jay, I, you know, as a, as a, as a mu music critic, uh, there's such a range of, of te technical knowledge that one needs to, to bring to that. And you yourself have training as a classical pianist, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, how has that helped you uh, as a writer about music? Well, I, I couldn't write about music without it, and I would be uh, clueless. By the way, there are arabesques in music. Hmm? Debussy wrote a couple of them. Hmm. All right. Um, probably nicer to see and hear. But I, I was brought up in music. I was trained as a musician, and, and that was my life, or at least the dominant part of it. And I went in another direction, and I was a, a writer, a journalist, and working at a magazine, a sort of political cultural magazine, and there was no one to write about music, and that was a niche I could fill for them. And I started to do it, and then I did more of it, and then for other publications, and, and so on. So um, I don't know all that much. I once gave a pretty long speech, a written speech about music criticism. I don't know all that much about how others do it. I can only say how, how I do it, and I, this may sound immodest, but I, I I, I write as a musician, and I, I don't know how else to, to do it. Um, my pieces tend to be not so heavy on musicology. I know a fair amount about uh, music history and, and theory and so on, but I write most of the time about performance, all sorts of performance, um, instrumental, vocal, conducting, and, and so on. Writing about composition is a different kettle of fish. Um, I guess those are the two main tasks of a music critic, to write about performance and to write about composition. And then we write about trends and the business of music and, and so on. What if there's something analogous in art? When, when, you, when you write about art, you write only about the composition. Right? You, only, you write about the artwork. I, I suppose, well, it's different yeah. in, suppose it's different in... Uh, well, a dance critic writes about choreography, doesn't she? Mm -hmm. As well as dancing. The structure. And... and uh, a theater critic would write about acting and, of course, about, about new plays, or even old plays. Uh, but it takes a different mind, or a different part of one's mind, to write about composition, as distinct from performance. And that uh, a music critic should be um, a, a generalist in music, I think. 
Yes. James, could I just uh, add something to what Laura uh, or expand on something that Laura said? <clears throat> you mentioned, Laura, that you couldn't become a, a, a real dance critic until you were probably 40-ish or so, uh, because you needed to see so much. And um, uh, while I, I wouldn't be necessarily so uh, absolute about the exact age, I think that it's probably true that, I mean, the, the, we ask, you know, what is criticism? The, the, the title David gave for this uh, panel is an allusion to T.S. Eliot, who, who described um, criticism as the elucidation of works of art and the correction of taste. And if you really think about those two things, it, you know, the elucidation of works of art, sort of saying what they are, and it has also a kind of a, a, a you know, um, a kind of formative aspect, the correction of taste. It's very, very different sorts of things. But what is criticism? It's, it's, it means to distinguish good from bad. And the, the fundamental critical act, Eliot said, was, was exactly that, to distinguish the good work from the bad work. And how do you do that? It's a process of comparison. Criticism means to sift, to compare, to discriminate, to judge. And um, that act of comparison is at the very heart of, uh, I think, aesthetic um, judgment. And uh, it's at the very heart of at least that one current of what the new criterion is, is about. No, I think that's really right. I, 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 and, and I, you know, for, for people starting out um, as arts uh, journalists, I mean, isn't, isn't it really the case that, uh, that you begin at whatever age to present yourself before works of art and you take in and absorb as much aesthetic information from the work as you possibly can at that point in your life? And then you take that information, that experience, to the next experience. And now your experience is a little bit richer because you have more comparisons. You've lived a little bit longer. You have more experience. And so I think Laura's point about really kind of growing into the art of criticism uh, is exactly right. You have to have enough lived experience and enough experience of works of art to really uh, bring uh, depth to your, uh, to your criticism. Um, I wanted to uh, shoot a question down to James because unless you're hiding paintings in your closet, I don't know that you uh, are um, would own up to being a practitioner of uh, of visual art. However, you uh, did study uh, visual art uh, in graduate school, uh, yet you decided against a career in the academy uh, in favor of a career as uh, as a, as an art critic. Um, uh, you write. Uh, uh, every month gallery criticism uh, for the New Criterion as well as uh, uh, pieces on uh, art uh, generally for the New Criterion and, and elsewhere. Um, what was that journey? Why aren't you, uh, why aren't you uh, teaching at some, uh, 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 some uh, uh, you know, Ivy'd uh, uh, college right now? Well, a similar reason, I think, to Roger. Uh, I, I grew up uh, in New York and my introduction uh, to Hilton was through the New York Observer column as well. Like, like you. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I think there were a few other critics that I. You grew I up in the shadow of Lincoln Center, did you not? I, I, yeah, across the street yeah. from Lincoln Center. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he, he was an idol of mine, I would say, from an early age. In high school, I read him in the New York Observer. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know I wanted to do arts criticism at that point, but uh, I knew I wanted to do cultural criticism, journalism of some sort. Um, I think people's careers often evolve this way. You have a kind of general sense of what you want to do. And I edited newspapers in high school and college. Um, and then I landed a great job at National Review, working with Jay for a little bit of time, um, and, which is a fantastic experience. National Review space for arts criticism is limited, as Jay can tell you as well. I then went to graduate school in art history, thinking, well, I'll focus kind of more serious criticism there realizing quite quickly that the academic style was not something I liked. Um, not only the politics of the academy, and, and when I mean politics, I don't mean like Republican, Democrat politics, I just mean the kind of internal politics of getting a job in the academy. Are there Republican politics in the academy? <laughs> Sorry. I, maybe it exists somewhere, I don't know. But, but just, I mean, the, 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 what you have to go through to get a job in the academy, it's so difficult. I didn't like the style of writing you had to do to get it. Uh, I, I wanted to be a journalist, not an academic. And the new criterion, which I had heard about first in college, um, is an amazing combination of those things. It allows you to write seriously about the arts up to the level of an academic, but in a journalistic style. I, 
understanding and to take it seriously. And I will just say, uh, you know, the new Criterion deserves a lot of credit for taking on young writers and young editors. Um, that's a part of its mission, and to kind of build them out. You may think you want to do arts criticism, but if you don't have a place to do it and do it repeatedly and at some length, it's going to be very difficult to build a career out of that, or even get good enough where you feel good about it. Um, also, coming on as an editor, as I did in 2001, um, even though I had editorial experience before, I mean, really, that was editorial boot camp for me, and it, and it brought me into shape as an, as an editor and as a writer, too. And I would advise you know, those of you in journalism school, even if you want to do criticism and you want to write criticism, trying to get an editorial job, I think, puts you in a better position to do that um, and makes you a better writer because of it. I, I, you know, talking about academic writing, I can't help but think that, you know, that in that first issue when Hilton was talking about deliberate obscurantism, whether that wasn't partly what he was referring to. And I, 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 I have to say, I get, I get a huge smile on my face. <clears throat> Occasionally, I bump into uh, my friend uh, from Chicago, Christian Wyman, who's the editor of Poetry Magazine. And he says, I always read the new Criterion. It's so blessedly clear. And mm. I think, oh, you know, that is just the, couldn't have said anything nicer. Um, and uh, I, that puts me in mind of a question that I'll maybe uh, throw out to Roger. Um, who, what kind of writer is the ideal new Criterion critic? What are you looking for when you take on a new uh, talent, when you see an article, a clip? What, what, what is that, uh, what are the characteristics of that? Well, um, <clears throat> fizz. Mm -hmm. I, 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 um, uh, we, we just hired a new theater critic, uh, someone who I think has n never wrote theater criticism before. I don't know how much theater he saw, but he seemed to be, to be somebody who um, had a sensibility and a take on the world and a, a writing style that was um, full of red corpuscles. You know, you felt that this, this was, um, it was energetic writing, it wasn't trendy, uh, it was independent uh, uh, in his writing about other things. And indeed, he's turned out to be, uh, this Kevin Williamson who works at National Review uh, uh, as, a, as an editor. And it's just, um, you know, full of, of life. And that's, that's really um, what I look for, is somebody who's, you know, hasn't been, hasn't been hobbled by the dead hand of the academy. I mean, you spoke about clarity. There's a, a disciple of Jacques Derrida, uh, who I'm sure you all have heard of, uh, whose name is unpronounceable, at least by, by me. But he, he referred to clear writing as a politically motivated uh, 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 act that should be deliberately subverted by those who were, um, you know, in, as he was, uh, out to um, bring on the, the, this, the revolution of deconstruction. Uh, so uh, there, there is a component of the academy that actually regards clear writing as the enemy. And uh, we are the enemy of, 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 of that. But, um, you know, I think it, James is right that um, one of the things that the new criterion is is a kind of um, uh, hothouse for forcing young talent. We're always on the lookout for uh, young, talented writers. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we have a very broad tent at the new criterion. We have no ideological tests. What we want are knowledge and, and uh, good writing. Uh, in a few minutes, I'd like to open it up to uh, questions um, from the audience. But before I do that, maybe I could just um, start with James and head down the panel this way. Uh, I'd be curious to know uh, from each of you you know, what you've seen recently uh, that's really uh, got you excited? What are your enthusiasms? What are the kind of signs of optimism on the contemporary scene? Well, well, I think there are many. Uh, for me, I mean, one thing that's great about the new criterion and my assignment as being the gallery critic is I get to go out and go to the galleries every month. Uh, it, I don't get to spend all my time doing it. I probably spend three or four days a month looking at the galleries and then a couple more days writing my article. Um, it's the new criterion has therefore allowed me to um, investigate my interest in abstract art, which is something I found I'm very interested in. And within that, I think there, here in New York especially, are older artists who came of age in the 1970s, who are now maybe in their 60s and 70s, who are doing very good work, and it's being totally neglected by the mainstream press. 
and I see part of my mission is bringing that work to you know popular attention. Um, can I just uh, kind of interpolate a, a quote from Alan Tate that uh, you, you you made me think of? Uh, in 1936, this is interesting, that 1936, Alan Tate wrote that prejudice is not dogma, and by dogma he meant coherent thought in the pursuit of critical principles. He said, if prejudice were dogma, the New York Times Book Review would be a first-rate critical organ. It allows the narrowest possible range of artistic performance along with the widest latitude of incoherent opinion and a popular success, simply because it uses, instead of principle, prejudice. That was 1936, so um, I, I wonder uh, if people think that things have changed very much. And <laughs> um, I'm very excited about a young choreographer named Larry Kegwin. <coughs> He's uh, sort of in the Paul Taylor mode, and uh, it's a very fresh, extremely uh, metaphorical kind of choreography he's doing now. Uh, there's another young classical choreographer, Peter Kwanz, who is developing nicely. Um, I'm not uh, convinced that uh, Alexei Ratmansky, who is getting a big push from many critics, is all he's cracked up to be, but you know, we'll wait and see and give him a little more time. Um, Christopher Wielden is producing, he produced a piece uh, last year called Commedia, which was for me the first really wonderful, coherent ballet he's made. Um, what happens in dance a lot of time is that young choreographers get taken up and get too much praise too, uh, too soon and too many gigs and they sort of burn themselves out and so I'm hoping that's not going to happen with Chris Wielden and with Larry Kegwin um, as it did with Mark Morris um, and there's a lot of young dance talent coming on especially in the classical dance world uh, it's very hard to predict where young ballerinas are going to come from because it's perhaps the hardest um, performing arts talent to nurture and uh, we're seeing a lot of beautiful young dancers especially at New York City Ballet um, Tyler Peck, Sarah Mearns, Catherine Morgan okay <laughs> uh, can I actually I'd like to add something to what you said uh -huh. that I do think that actually often too much critical attention is lavished on young performers or young artists uh, if you read New York Magazine, it's all you're reading about is these young hotshots who burn out you know, next week. Uh, it's much more important as critics, I think, to resurrect talent that's out there. They're, not, they, they, they're older, they're you know, mid-career, late-career. I think any criteria is very, very good at digging that up and bringing that to people's attention. Um, well, David's question reminds me of an anecdote that Hilton tells about uh, his tenure at the New York Times. He used to have these weekly meetings at which Arthur Gelb, then the managing editor, would go around the table and ask the critics, what's new? <coughs> and you always had to say, well, you know, what's new and what's exciting and what should we be, we be pushing this week? And one day, uh, one, one, of the, one of these meetings, Hilton said, um, well, nothing. There's nothing new this week. And uh, Arthur Gelb, to his credit, shot back instantly, is that a trend? <laughs> 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 But I think um, uh, I recently wrote a, 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 in, in the magazine uh, distinguishing between the, the art world on the one side and the world of art, uh, which is something quite different. And I was talking about the visual arts, but I think a similar distinction could be made about all cultural endeavor. Uh, there, is the, 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 there is that world of the limelight, of the people who are getting all of the attention that uh, you know, uh, the New York Times is pushing and so on. And then there's the world of serious, you know, artistic and cultural endeavor over, over here. Now, they aren't entirely distinct. They're like Venn diagrams. There's a little section in the middle there where they overlap. But what does it mean, for example, that the chief art critic for the New York Times should describe Matthew Barney as the most important American artist of his generation? Uh, some of you here may, be, uh, may have led blessed lives, so you don't know who he is. But I can take it from me, he is a fraud of the first water. Uh, but, but he is exactly right for an organ like the New York Times that is, has this kind of 
um, you know, insatiable need to find the new, uh, regardless of, of its quality. And um, uh, it seemed, one of the things I think that the new criterion is, um, it has excelled at is averting its, I mean, we, we certainly look at the, the world of the limelight to criticize it, but we avert our gaze from it uh, in our effort to battle what I've called cultural amnesia, a kind of forgetfulness. Now, that's partly going back and trying to resuscitate uh, reputations and figures who have been forgotten, but also it has, we're, we, the, the new criterion is not an antiquarian enterprise. We are very much involved in the culture of today, and it's a very vibrant culture. It's just that it's not always the culture that gets the ink uh, you know, uh, in the in the major organs, um, I write a, a, a an occasional thing in my web blog called Bright Spots of uh, you know things that that I've that I've found that I think are pretty nifty and really haven't got the attention they deserve. For example, uh, there's a young artist called Jacob Collins who uh, is a realist painter, uh, but he's very serious, very good, um, and uh, although I think he's up and coming and you will hear a lot about him eventually, he's not you know. He doesn't get the ink that, say, the Matthew Barneys of the world uh, get. So I, mean, I think uh, the new criterion, we definitely are uh, uh, out to um, give praise where praise is due. But uh, you know, there, there's a there's a lot of um, a lot of mendacious stuff around us. Use the word that you you uh, quoted at the beginning. No, I think of the the. <laughs> uh, we think of how the great period of the Victorian novel. But how many great Victorian novels are there? A couple dozen, a couple, a couple score. But between 1837, when Victoria ascended the throne and Dickens wrote the Pickwick Papers, and 1900, when she died, or 1901, uh, there were 70,000 novels produced in England. 70,000. How many of them are worth uh, remembering? Very few. <laughs> Several things can be said about music, for sure. There's always a lot of it written and then a little of it lasts. Um, we're talking about youth. Uh, there's a great bias in the music world in favor of the young. The young are pampered and ballyhooed. Um, there's a great preference on the part of some critics and music administrators for young conductors, which is a, a reversal because when I was growing up, the older conductors were prized because they were experienced and wise and they were ripening and maturing. And if you saw gray or white hair on the podium, you were reassured. They've always been talented young conductors. But now there's this bias in favor of youth and, and hipness. And I interviewed, not very long ago, a conductor named Franz Welsermust. He's an Austrian who conducts in Cleveland and at the Vienna State Opera. And they call this a sickness of our time. And I think that's about right. Uh, but there are many, many good young musicians, including very young musicians. Um, they just keep coming and coming in all areas, the piano, the violin, singing, and so on. Many uh, prodigies, uh, very often musical talent outs very early. It does where the piano is concerned. It does where the violin is concerned. Uh, singers take more time. Conductors take a lot of time, uh, of course. And um, there's this trend or fact which I and some others have referred to as the sinofication of music. And uh, music is becoming very, very Chinese. And uh, this is a, a good and, and remarkable thing. Uh, some people worry about the death of classical music. I think this is an over-worry. And I often quote Charles Rosen, a pianist and scholar. He's a performing musician who writes. Yes, that's right. Charles Rosen says that the death of classical music is maybe its oldest tradition. <laughs> uh, but some people worry about that. And um, I, I put this question about the future of music to Lauren Mazel, the conductor, in an interview last summer. The first thing he said was, thank God for China. They're mad for it. They're ravenous for it. And American conservatories are filled with Chinese and other Asian students. And Gary Grafman, the former president, uh, a legendary pianist Grafman, and the former president of the Curtis Institute, which is a conservatory in Philadelphia, he told me that at his school, Almost all the teachers are Jewish, and almost all the students are Asian, and that's the way it is, and thank God for it, because the torch has been passed, so to speak. There's a very, very great appetite for music in the world, including in places um, where Western music has not had a great presence, uh, the European classical tradition. Uh, this is true of South America as well, some parts of South America. So uh, those are trends, uh, something new. 
And there's always that worry about composition, whether there is uh, good music being written now. We've got a lot of it banked, a lot of it deposited. There's plenty of good music that could last us uh, millennia. Uh, but it's always nice to hear uh, new music that is uh, worthwhile. Uh, forget about uh, stunning or great, but, but worthwhile. And I'm always looking for composers to praise and, and, and boost and, and delight in. It's wearisome for a critic to, to go night after night and say, uh, that's no good, that's no good. You feel so anti, you know, you feel so, 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 so negative. But when someone comes through, you go, aha, and you, and you jump all over it. So uh, I, am, I am especially pleased when I hear a piece of new music that I think is written. I say about a piece of new music, I say this is the highest praise I can give it. I'd like to hear it again. And it doesn't sound like much, but it can be much. Um, I, we have a few minutes for uh, uh, questions, and I think we're going to head just down uh, a flight uh, and have a glass of wine and, and continue the conversation. But uh, would anyone like to uh, ask you that question? Yeah, there's a hand in the back. Yeah. <clears throat> nope, you. <coughs> I might say something about the music critics, um, and, and this may apply to the arts pages across the board. I, I know all of them, and I'm friends with some of them. And there is a, an agenda and a point of, of, of view, uh, which is fine, but it's a little bit closed. And a colleague of mine, not on the Times, summed it up this way. Um, new, untraditional, good older, traditional, bad. And that's just not the way the world is. There are things uh, that are new that are wonderful and new things that are atrocious and old things that are wonderful and older things that are not so great. Uh, but there is, um, there is a, a, an agenda or, or a program and it seems like the wagons are circled and, and I for one in, in the music area would welcome um, a greater range of views and, and and I think one of the reasons why the Times does come up, aside from its being um, uh, the big Kahuna, the big Kahuna, uh, is because it was it was you know part of the creation myth of the new criterion. I mean, Hilton was at the New York Times for 17 years, and he left the Times for very specific reasons to found the new criterion to do something that he couldn't do at the Times, and so uh, that may be a point of comparison that we you know kind of return to. Um, may, I, may I tell a quick story please. about the Times and music? It's called, um, some friends and I refer to it as the paper because people uh, in the music world refer to the New York Times almost always as the paper. For example, they'll say, um, they'll say um, well, you know, it didn't even make the paper. I'll say, oh, what paper? And, and um, did you see the review? Uh, what review? Where? Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it, what they always mean is the Times. And I, I've taken people to concerts that I've reviewed and heard them say later, you know, that concert wasn't even reviewed. And, 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 and what it meant was that a review did not appear in the, in, in the New York Times. I think in the theater world, I, I've heard this said from credible, uh, credible sources, and I believe it's true. In the theater world, it used to be that the Times could kill a show. Still, Still I thought we were a little bit past that. No. Uh, it, but the... Um, the Times is, is, is a kingmaker to a degree. I've, I've heard it said by people who ought to know that the latest music director of the New York Philharmonic was appointed in order to please and appease the chief critic of the New York Times because the Times is so very important to the financial health of the New York Philharmonic. That is a paper with too much power, but if you have that power, better use it wisely. And then, of course, there's the other side of that coin where you have editors commissioning reviews who are feeling the pinch of the advertising pages because they understand as overseers of the criticism in the paper that they can only say certain things um, and then you're then you're hamstrung then you're you're nowhere as a critic you can't you know and um, uh, and that's something that I think we, we feel very you know proud of at the new criterion of not kind of being in that corner um, yeah, I, will, I will also say that 
it's it's important also to distinguish that you know the Times is not one writer. There are many writers there, many writers who are freelance writers. I, I think some of the freelance, maybe you, maybe you disagree. Some of the freelance music critics can be a little better than some of their. Yeah. You know, yeah. One went to the on Washington stack. Post, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I think that what that reflects is, I mean, the, the, it's like a, a very large battleship that turns very slowly, and. If you're a, a powerful critic at the New York Times, you're the top critic. You got there because you understand how to be powerful, and that's usually put, you know, putting your finger in your mouth, sticking it up in the air, seeing which way the wind's blowing, and then that's your position, and then you articulate that position. I must say, it's very, very rare to read critic negative criticism of a new work of music in the New York Times. It's considered disloyal, unless that new work of music is what some people call neo-romantic. Of course, we can um, we can throw out uh, praise for uh, throw out praise to um, uh, one of the freelance music critics uh, who is an extraordinarily fine writer and happens to be uh, with us tonight, Johanna Keller. So <laughs> they are holding up standards there to some, to some degree. I'm pleased to say. And and Grace Gluck was a very good uh, absolutely. Part absolutely. She's no longer there. Absolutely. Sorry, there was another question. Yes. By other forms, you mean? Well, I'm sorry, by the web, basically. Okay, sure. And, mm. um, I mean, the main critic, music critic of the New York Times, has particularly been accused of championing anyone who's popular. And is that perhaps also because... He has a role in deciding who's popular. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Well, standing behind the publication and the classical music scene in general, which has also been threatened in recent years. You know... The chief critic of the New York Times, who is no fan of mine, is a very good critic, a man named Tony Tomasini. He's a very good critic, but he's just one critic, and I always felt kind of sorry for him because the New York Times is kind of like Pravda in, in the music world. I don't know about the arts in general. I mean, it is the paper, and, and great responsibility rests on his shoulders because if there's a new piece, for example, new opera at, at the Met, uh, like this opera by the uh, Chinese-American composer Tan Dun. Everyone looks to that review. It's, up, it's like the official review. It's like the review in It's like the state review. The official. That's a huge amount of pressure. It's just nice to have a range of opinion. And uh, I enjoy reading Tomazini very much. Very good critic. I enjoy reading a lot of other people, too. Uh, but um, uh, there's only room for so many at the mountaintop. It's, it's my impression, actually, that the New York Times is becoming uh, less and less powerful, however. Um, I'm not sure about the, the uh, in music criticism, but the book review, for example, the Sunday book review, um, is a pale shadow of its former self. I mean, some of us have thought of the New York Times book review as a kind of metaphysical prodigy in the sense that it's always, in, in my lifetime, it's always been bad. We've always thought it's about as bad as it can be. And then a new editor comes along and makes it even worse, uh, and, which is true. Uh, you know, it's amazing how the, what a consistent, uh, a consistent journey the New York Times Book Review has had. But if you look at it today and compare the, the, um, the range of works that are, are reviewed and the kinds of works that are reviewed and go back, you know, go back 10 years and then 20 years and then 40 years and so on, you will find that it's a much narrower range of, of, of works that, that, are, that are reviewed and they're reviewed in a very demotic sort of way. I mean, there long, you know, long reviews devoted to the biography of Led Zeppelin, for example. D do we need the New York Times book review for that? Or, a, a, you know, a, a full-page review of a book called How to Make Love Like a Porn Star. Do we need the New York Times for that? Uh, no, is the answer. Well, the, and what's even, in a way, what's more shocking than what they do review is what they leave out of account. The number of, of important books that are totally ignored by the Times uh, would fill a library. Um, one of my hats is um, to be the publisher of a small uh, publishing house here in New York called Encounter Books. And at one point, I'd, a couple, about a year and a half ago, I just decided that we weren't going to send our books to the New York Times anymore. So I, uh, I ran a public... Uh, notice and said, you know, as of this date, we are no longer sending our, our books to the New York Times for review. And it's made no difference at all to our sales. They, they, it used to be that a, a, a positive review in the New York Times would make a book. I think that is not true anymore. Can, can the Times kill a book any longer? No. 
Our friend David Price Jones, years ago, published a book on the Arab world, got a negative review in the Times, and Norman Pothort said to him when the review came out, they've killed your book. Turned out to be not so killed. It's yes, close circuit. Yes, yes. That's no longer true. No longer true. Now, I mean, it may be true about, I mean, there was a, gosh, it was a, it was a chap uh, who wrote a play that got a devastating review in the New York Times, and uh, I think, you know, it closed instantly. I, I, that, this was a while ago, though. I, I, I don't know that the New York Times still wields that kind of power, even in the, in the world of theater. Yeah, but one thing I wonder is, what, what does it mean, though, as traditional paid, co paid um, print coverage of the arts is going down? Book reviews are closing. You know, the, the space for arts coverage mm -hmm. is missing. So you may have some very good art bloggers who actually can be very good critics, but it's very hard for them to make a living. Doing yes. Maybe just one last question, and we'll have a glass of wine. Yeah. I was just curious. Oh, what, sorry. Uh, not me. No, no. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> sir. Absolutely. I was just curious what um, publications or websites or blogs each of you read regularly, or subscribe to? Um, well, it's a good question because I mean, isn't it amazing that you know the kind of the function of uh, of uh, websites that intelligently sift um, uh, material on the web? Um, and one I know that I always look to is uh, Arts and Letters Daily. Um, also, Arts Journal is a very good um, kind of daily summary of uh, arts coverage, uh, and I kind of I get that in my inbox every morning. I don't know what other people look at. I, I don't I don't look at blogs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Is there um, a hot dance site? Um, there's ballet, ballet alert. Ballet alert, and yeah, I don't look at them too much because they're basically fans writing, and there's not a lot of critical analysis in them, and it just can be infuriating. So um, well, there you go. Someone can start a dance website. Yeah. The field is wide open. I, uh, I, you know, Roger encouraged me to sign up for Twitter, so I'm on Twitter now. <laughs> and uh, honestly, I mean, it's, you know, writing on Twitter is a little frustrating. Do you tweet? I occasionally do tweet. You can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> but the people I do follow on Twitter, I actually find very useful. And basically, they're bloggers um, in, in fine art. Usually bloggers I can't stand, but I still follow them. Tyler Green uh, is one. Um, I almost always disagree with him. Uh, Culture Girl, I, I do agree with usually, and she's very good, too. She's on Arts Journal, too. Yeah, and, and she writes for the Wall Street Journal. So I also, I mean, it's not, I guess, following a blog, but you can then get uh, broadcast to Twitter when the, the uh, Wall Street Journal puts up its latest round of arts coverage. And that's useful to me as well. Thank you all so much. Um, let's continue the conversation over a glass of wine. <laughs>